let's take on the world. All right. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Lifters League podcast, the Muscle and Strength Science podcast. My name is Ben Ashmole. I'm here with elite powerlifting and strength coach Gus Cook, and we've got a really special guest today. So we have Dr. Locke, good friend of mine for many years, who worked with us uh, many. at Lifters, Year, Lifters League. Um, so what's new, Dr. Locke? Oh, man. What is new is what is old is probably the best way of saying it, man. <laughs> Feel it seriously. I reckon what we're finding out and what everyone thinking is new is just rediscovering what we already knew a long time ago. Yeah, It's this weird sort of cycle of, keeps going around and around where people start saying they discover something. You go, yeah, well, that was about 60 years ago, the first time I saw that one. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> so the newest thing, there is one thing new, though. There is definitely one thing new in rehab, and that's um, a little thing that I've come up with, which is based in science and anatomy, and it's based in working on the proprioceptive system of the spine. And, look, it's just been a series of events that came to me when – we always consider the core to be the 10 major sort of muscles that we look yeah. at, you know, the abs, the back, QLs, psoas, lats. But what drives those to action correctly is a series of little transducers that sit alongside the spine. The intertransversari and the interspinale muscles, they're muscles, but they don't have much contractile potential, but they're full of muscle spindles. Mm-hmm. And what's been found is that people who have Errors in the way they move due to back problems often have it due to poor understanding and relationship between those muscles, which are just telling your your core what to do, and the way the core switches on. So I've worked Ah. on a new little system, which actually works on the little paravertebrals, and it works on the proprioceptive system. It works on the muscle spindles. They're feeding back, they're reflexing, and they're setting up backs better. So... There we are. When I was always thinking we'd almost found it, it really came from a strange situation where I was looking through the great Professor McGill's work because I have a couple of times and spent some time with him. And it was sort of like his work very much is working upon the muscles that contract and how you evaluate them. Yeah. And just, um, you know, he was sort of discussing about the fact that these little muscles are high in muscle spindles. And there's a neurosurgeon in Perth who's a friend of mine called uh, Quinton Malone. And Quinton was saying, yes, that the multifidus muscles are very high in muscle spindle as well. Now, these are the area, ones that we know in lower back pain recovery sometimes are the problems. And so, yep, that's the latest work. We're having some great success with some really good lifters, bringing them back with a lot of proprioceptive work. So this is some of the off- offset kind of walks you've been doing with, with this individuals. This is the offset things. Yeah, yeah. and using a, ba- a band and a moving weight. And the whole thing about it is it's having to work at a reflex level. You can't consciously deal with what's happening with that jumping band. Your mm-hmm. body's got to figure it out but faster than you can consciously think about it. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's what we're looking for. That's the underlying missing component, a lot of back problems. So, so I've seen people who have been put on the junk pile who are absolutely having a great recovery now. How, how's this differentiating from the static, kind of all the static exercises that you've been, do- that you've been doing for a while? Yeah, so always we looked at the recovery of the static system, which really works a lot, you know, works for most of us anyway. Remember, statistically, 80% of all back problems will get better in four weeks, regardless of whether I see you, whether the Chinese fishmonger slaps a fish over the top of your head, <laughs> or whether you bark at, <laughs> seriously, or whether you bark at the full moon. You're going to get better 80% of the time in four weeks and 92% of the time in eight weeks. 
So we often think we're successful practitioners because our success rate's so good. And that's bullshit. That's your body healing you. What the good practitioners do, they get the ones who are, hey, the 8% on the outside that everyone says, uh, you've got a chronic problem and turn them around fast because we understand, yeah, there's some dysfunction in your movement patterns and uh, you've got some weaknesses here that you're not addressing. That's where the better coaches, of course, come in. And that's where the, you know, it comes with experience. Great coaches and great health professionals have the same eye. We identify the things that are beyond just you know, the standard person does. Now, the underlying subsystem under there, which we're looking at now with the muscle spindle, is really looking at recovering the reflex patterns that you can't get to that fast. And in, I think in combat sport, that's really important. In a running sport, in a rugby or something like that, there's something that really needs to be worked in. And no one's ever figured it out before, so you know, I'll take that one. How quickly would you say in, a, in the rehab process would you put in this um, proprioceptive kind of work into their rehab? Yeah, you know, I actually tested out on even some nasty extrusions. I've had people walk in and because realistically I've got to find out, I've tested this on some people who have walked in with some nasty pieces of disc hanging out over a centimetre and they do a couple of laps holding a weight that's bouncing and then they come back and they go, I feel better. So it seems that's to be quite insane. rapid, the difference you can make. It's that's amazing. insane. Oh. It's another level. Yeah, so it's a whole new thing that we can work with now, on the other side of it, then we've got to fix up the fact they've got a shit moving pattern in the first place, mm. that the hips don't extend well, that they're still doing things wrong. It's not going to fix them up. That's our coaching work. We go then say, okay, the reason you got pro- you got a problem is because you did all these things wrong, but I'm also doing this to help you restore your ability to move. But if you keep moving like shit, you're going to get hurt again anyway. So that's, we've got to fix that up regardless. So it's just part of an overall toolkit. So are you doing this in just um, in just walking in a walking sense? Are you doing it with a squat as well? I've oh, seen man. Squat. Yeah, have a look at um, JP Price and uh, he's doing it with a squat. And, man, that's fantastic. He's um, he's over there in the States and, yeah, he started off with the walking work and the squat and there's another guy, Mike, in Florida at Battle Axe Gym um, and he does them with lunges as well. So, you know, I find the bilateral movements – are good, the squat's nice, and we do the unilateral movements, the asymmetrical movements, the walking patterns. So you can pretty much design it to task almost. If you've got an athlete who's a running athlete, okay, it's nice to do a bit of squat work, but they're going to have to move unilaterally and asymmetrically. So we've got to figure out how to load that task. Mm-hmm. And we, we all know how to do it, which is really good. So part of my ignorance, but I'm I'm the uh, I'm not to Gus's level on the understanding, so I'll unpack it for people listening who aren't. <laughs> yeah. So are we, are we talking kind of, what are we talking about using here? Is it like resistance bands or something along with that matter or? Yeah, so the starting situation is a challenging one is you just use a wooden dowel or just a, a like a big broomstick. Yeah. The reason I like to use that is because it's light. And if you put a band on that and then you suspend a weight from that, it's really hard to control. Yeah, it is, yeah. You put, a, you put a bar on your back, okay, it's got a little bit of weight on the other side, it can help you a bit. So in the early stages, actually, the stick is harder than the bar to control. Mm. But then you move to the bar and then you might move to a heavier weight. And a good friend of mine, Cam, who never stops thinking, he decided to add the moving weight and then put some chains on the other side of the bar as well. So he has some nice. changing resistance plus some perturbation. It's fantastic. And this is, it's all open to us to consider and design. So what what about what about what about something similar with like say a pressing movement with shoulder stability work? Yeah, that that situation's more about not from the center outwards. 
So we're not looking at um, the spine being the issue there for control. We're actually probably looking at the rotator cuff control. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, a few people are playing with the idea that we will transfer that situation to the rotator cuff. So we'll get a band and a bar, offset it, and let's do some pressing movements. And it's really tough. One of the things I think about a lot of times is too, stability work burns you out fast, so you can't do a lot of it at once. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know what it's like? If you want to be a bodybuilder, right, go stay on a machine that has a fixed axis and you can work on it for hours because there's no stability required, just big muscle groups working. Right. And you can really work hard on those for a long period of time. Stability work, that's tough on the nervous system and that the dosage of that, you've actually got to be very, very precise almost. You've just got to be aware that you don't do a hell of a lot of it all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. You might do a little bit each day. But you don't do a whole, you don't want to do half an hour of it far out. You, you wouldn't even be able to lift a weight up because you'd be so burned out neurologically, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so, that, so it's like this. Yeah. Sorry, you would be introducing damage if you do it too much, then, pretty much. There's no, potential you, for just, more injury. I just think you'd you just be so tired, you, you move and pads, you get terrible, fatigue. You, you waste it. Yeah, so it's a bit of something new there, Dr. Gus. You know, we're always uncovering something a little bit different. and it was like when you brought neurochemistry to my mind. I thought, hey, how interesting is that when we think about program design? Yeah, that has been huge. that has been very interesting. And it's unlocked so many. I think it's unlocked unlocked so many of things that you know you've you've observed over time, or becomes a better explanation for the things I've already seen for a very long time. You know, because intuitively, mm-hmm. you, intuitively, you start to understand and profile athletes. But this seems to be more an exact science behind what I was seeing, and because yeah, of that, you, you got it. Yeah. You had the intuition, and now you got the science that tells you why your intuition is right. Yes. So yeah, I've, I've actually introduced a lot of people to your concept there, and it's amazing that our health professionals have really enjoyed examining it and immediately seeing how it transferred to their thoughts. Yeah, so it's a great, it's a great piece once again. It seems to have a lot of um, correlation. So some of the discoveries, and I'm still doing research on it now, like the discoveries between uh, muscle fiber dominance and uh, neural. Um, uh, neurological response to different tra- different training stimuli. So, if you know, like uh, someone who is highly receptive to, to dopamine has a a, a, high, a high ratio of fast switch fast switch muscle fibers respond better to explosive work, but take a long time to recover. Where on the mm. other on the other spectrum, where you have say high high, high sensitivity to ser- to serotonin, um, then th- those people uh, have generally an impact on the immune system. So don't do so well with heavy, with heavy training because their re- recovery from heavy training is, is, is harsh, but they do really well with volume work. So this, they do better with, um, they do better with higher frequency, high volume, but low intensity. So it's just like, there's been some really, really awesome guess individualization we've been able to do with understanding the neural type of, how, of a person. How are you, how are you profiling these people and finding out what, like, are you just, are you just basically, Test, repeat, test, repeat, or are you no? Well, you, in a clinical, you can get, you can do, you can do a person. There's a, there's a few ways. You can do a personality test, which is a test you can only take once because once you once you've done it once, you can't understand it. And you can just you can start to manipulate it. Okay. So it's based off certain pe- people's personality, but you can actually there's there's some people there who are now reverse kind of reverse engineering it, doing, um, uh, doing fiber dominance fiber dominance testing to then work out what the neurotransmitter dominances are. So they have a more of an objective test towards it rather than a subjective test. Um, right. okay. They find it very. There'll be people who. <laughs> there'll be people who love that. Yeah. And there'll be people who hate that. 
But when you start to understand the relationship between the neurotransmitters in the body and and uh, the effects on it has on their personality, you start to see, um, you can start to make good guesses about based off how you interact with them and and <laughs> and how they present themselves, how they talk to you. So you can start to work out yourself um, what category they start to fit in. So just just to be clear, you're at the point now where your intuition, you basically are having conversations with athletes and you can basically start to profile them, go, okay, I can see that by the way they are talking to me, they react to this, this, and this, and this. You can start to get an idea. Yeah. <laughs> so far out, far out. my mind is blown. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it was actually interesting. You actually, you can even tell it before they walk in. You can actually tell it before they even speak. Mm. Some people, the way, even the way they open the door will tell you what sort of person they are. Mm. Do they open it with, hey, the fuck, I'm here. <laughs> or they open it meekly and gently. And yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of things that come through nonverbal communication that you pick up and you go, yep, figuring you out straight away before you even open your mouth. Yeah, that was a big segment so, in one of your workshops, wasn't it, for yeah. rehabilitation. There's so much so much to do with just the uh, just being able to understand that person, how to communicate with that person and how to yeah. make them feel good. That's what success is, isn't it? And that's why we have a neurochemistry because we've got to be able to relate to them. Because training motivation means whether they're going to stick with the program. And exactly. I do that in compliance work for rehab. So we've got a universal principle, whether it's rehab or whether it's programming and coaching. We've got to get the motivation that a client's going to accept that they're going to do the work that you say. Really interesting. I, I mean, I, I was a professional athlete when I was a kid. So I was soccer. But I was absolutely destroyed by hamstring issues. And my pattern was the same again and again and again. It would be major tear, rest for a month, and be at that period where it feels okay and you really need to step up the rehab and I'd just go hell for leather, tear it again, <laughs> rinse, repeat every time. That's That was me. So, <laughs> Well, Gus will talk about, you know, Gus's great pick here. What's the best thing? Hell, it's not rest. As we say, you know, if your car's got a flat tire and you park it out the front of your house in the night, Guess what? In the morning when you wake up, it's still freaking flat. Yeah, you yeah. did nothing. So <laughs> resting is useless. <laughs> right. And Gus found that with his pick. You never never rest. Rest doesn't work. Rest makes things like like uh, like you say, it's like if any if any therapist tells you that you need you need to you need to stop training or, or rest, then you're seeing the wrong person. Right. Yeah. So, so, so that's Absolutely. interesting. We have segued nicely onto a subject that I was interested in when you when you mentioned it to me, and that was the fact that and you could introduce the kind of level of injury you had, but working with Andrew, you were able to basically turn it around without surgery, which. So, yeah. yes. So I, after a com after competition, I decided to test my bench again um, for some stupid reason. And, uh, and you know, after, <laughs> after analyzing the situation, it was probably very a simple explanation to why why it happened. Probably not a good idea would to you, max out, you know, a few days apart. <laughs> oh. Would you be a dopamine, would you be a dopamine dominant person, Gus? Uh, yes, I think yeah, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they um, basically I worked up to 190 90 kilos and um, it fell basically just missed my head falling back onto the rack. Um, felt like felt like a scalpel going from the top of my shoulder tearing down, like I, I felt it good. And I knew as I was going down, as I was going down, it's like, oh, I hope it holds. Cause I think that's just a cramp to like, ah, that hurts. Yeah. And then actually you don't even feel it. You just know it's like that, that doesn't feel right. So I might put it down. 
<laughs> and then, so yeah, anyway, put it down 190 kilos and then, um, worked out, went, went straight to the, went straight to the hospital and it ended up being a, um, 50 mil, 50 millimeter long, 40 millimeter deep and a bicep tendon tear. Oh, um, nice. And yeah, so they, I had surgeons come in saying, yeah, this is going to be life changing that I will never be the same. And I had two surgeons say that, that I'll need surgery. Um, at that point in time, I already knew that wasn't going to be the case. I've seen too many cases of people coming back from coming back from injuries, probably not nowhere near as fast as I guess I did, but I know people get away. I, I knew people did not need, did not need surgery. So I was quite, still quite confident. I just needed, needed the reassurance. This is when I reached out to Dr. Locke again. And, um, so the, you know, as I went, I went, I went down to, uh, big dogs, I had a few clients, had a few clients there. And, um, as I started, as the funny thing is, as I started using it more, it started to feel better. The less I used it, the worse it felt. Right. And um, this is some, uh, you know similar to the some of the, some of the concept behind what I guess Andrew was trying to explain to me is that you know it, it just become it just becomes sensitive if you treat it if you treat it sen- in a very sensitive way. Um, <laughs> it's like a teenager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> And Interesting. then, yeah, so when I went to see Andrew, the first thing we need to do is, is well, rehabbed it with bench press. And <laughs> we went, yeah, went into the gym and put a bar on it. <laughs> right. And, and that, so that straight away sounds crazy to me. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that's a rare thing to do, right? In the current climate. Is that, would that be correct? It's starting to find its way Good. through okay. people who have experience. Yeah, 99% of the professionals aren't going to understand it mm. because they don't deal enough with them. Yeah. But once you start to be once you start to become t- comfortable with an injury and an injury type as a professional, it becomes, yeah, now paper cuts are bad, muscle tears are bad, but they all heal. Yeah. Let's just work it. And sometimes paper cuts really fucking hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so then there's a brace. You know, so yeah, with biological tissue, just remember all biological tissue will basically heal if we give it the opportunity and will heal in a in a way that we rehab it. So if right. you don't do anything with it, you, you're going to have a piece of chewing gum in that pec. But if you start working it in the movement pattern, the collagen is going to basically line up in the movement. You're not going to tear it again then because your collagen's well will lay down. So right. if you just rest the thing for weeks, yeah, you're just, piecing, you're just sticking a weld in there that's going to get tugged on. And at some yeah. point, that's not extensible. So is this where people constantly re-injure the same injuries because they're not rehabilitating it properly? That would be certainly part one and part two is they haven't addressed the original reason they got hurt in the first place. Right, so they're still doing the incorrect movement. Yeah, okay. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. What's not working to continue to load that issue up? Right. That's usually the the classic thing. If you're treating a back problem, I bet you've got a hip problem under there. If you've got a hip problem, I bet you've got a back problem. Maybe you don't know it, but you will. And we better make sure you rehab those two things together because they – your psoas muscle attaches to your lumbar vertebrae and it attaches to your femur. Well, there's your spine and your hip. What's going to stabilize you? Your psoas. You got a pissed yeah. off back, you're going to go into hip flexion because you're going to be stabilizing your spine not to move. That's going to change the way your hip moves. Company with one of those after six months, you know you got a hip problem, but you think you've only got a back problem. It's so funny you said uh, that. I just had someone 
two days ago come to me with hip pain and then we start looking at the function of her not, not the function of her of her back her bracing her breathing her hip extension and then and they all started to relate so they were just the 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 ad- addressing the pain trigger ended up coming from both you know both her core lower back and and hips um, but most most of the work was just learning to teach her how to how to stabilize her core and use her glutes and then the pain and the hip pain goes yeah on. this is it this is this is what really might change the person you know look i make fun of the the professionals who use dry needles and massage yeah. as my as my profession goes i don't mind it has its place but don't make that your only therapy mm. you know if that's an adjunct to what you do that's an adjunct but if that's what you do to treat a person Seriously, if you're not professionally doing a really good job because you haven't addressed the original, original reason they got the problem, you haven't done anything, but shit, I don't really know what to do, so maybe I'll stick some pins in it. Mm-hmm. I reckon the dry needles have become the new ultrasound. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, everyone went to a physio, the ultrasound came out. What yeah. happens now? Oh, they dry needled me. <laughs> I, I, I got ultrasounded <laughs> fucking four did. hours a day, every day <laughs> on that hamstring. Like it was a magical ray gun, yeah. I remember Dorian Yates even bought his own um, ultrasound machine at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I haven't even heard of one being used for years. So, Mm -hmm. yes, things things still, I think things still basically as far as health professionals a lot of times go is it's sort of like, put it in the framework of saying, a great physio once told me when I first graduated, always be there when a patient gets better. They'll think you had something to do with it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's basically <laughs> that's basically what I see behind those therapies. Is eighty percent of the time they're going to get better in four weeks. You dry needle it for four weeks, eighty percent of your people are going to get better. It wasn't a dry needling, my dear. Sounds like coaching sometimes. So, sometimes. <laughs> I, right? Okay. You are so, universal. I, I have got to ask you what What are your thoughts on uh, Kairos? Because because yeah now now a lot of people think they're just just witch doctors. Are they doing the same thing there where people are just getting better? You know what? Of course they are. Yeah. But okay. the fact, basic thing is, it doesn't matter whether you're a physio, a chiro, or an osteo. It's not the profession that makes you a good professional. It's yeah. you as a human being. So there are absolutely crap people in all those fields, and there's absolutely outstanding people in all those right. fields. Yeah. So you need to find a chiro, an osteo, or a physio who basically does what you do. Oh, that's stage one. Now you've got somebody who understands what you're going to do. They're probably not going to be passive behind it. Mm. They're probably going to talk about it because they're passionate as well. So, yeah, don't worry about the profession. I've got some great chiros. I've seen some terrible physios. Look, to me, I am always have made fun of Pilates because no one knows what the hell it means because there's no definition of the word and there's no universal body behind it. And so, but that's what physios became known for. You know, everyone went yeah. off to Pilates. Well, it basically became the thing that they did because that's what they did. And they became very bad professionally because of hanging on this idea that, plus, let's face it, Pilates studios didn't go out of business, my dear. They made a lot of money. Yeah. And that was the first time I was ever introduced to it was when the guy said to me, hey, do you know anyone who can teach Pilates? I've got one of those machines and they make a lot of money. I didn't hear him say they fix people up. And that's really got to me as a profession. Yeah. I, I suppose what you're touching on there is the need as a professional to constantly look at what you do under the microscope and be willing to completely scrap it and change it based on the science, I suppose, <laughs> which a lot of, I mean, a lot of people don't, right? Oh, man, I had a horror story this week. A patient comes into me, and she's a smart girl, and she'd been to see this, well, professional, and it doesn't matter which one it was, but she said she realized that something was wrong because on his wall he had his hall of fame, his wall of fame, and he showed her all these photos 
of all the patients who had been there for over 500 treatments. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, <laughs> he's introducing to her the idea of dependence upon me. Yeah, of course. That's terrible. Yeah. And those people just should be absolutely struck off. But I had an interesting case came in this week. So a girl says to me, uh, she's contacted me over the online program and says to me, okay, I had this, I was doing a lot of renovating and I got this pain in my neck and I got a pain in between my shoulder blades. Now I'm going to tell you straight away, I've heard this in 10 seconds ago, that's a Clowards area. Okay. It's a particular sign that tells me it's a neck disc. I learned that in year one physio. Okay. That area of referral is a thing called a Cloward sign due to a surgeon called Cloward who did the investigations. Now, she went to a physio who said, I don't think it's a disc. Okay, he dry needled her and she thought that was useless. She went to, she went to an osteo. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a disc. Maybe it is. Perhaps we should get a scan, but I don't think it is. Good. Two professions have both got it wrong. Then she went to a chiro who cracked her neck and she got a hell of a lot worse. He didn't think it was a disc either. Now, three professions there have all been erroneously taught, and I wonder what the hell the universities are doing because that was year one for me. Mm. You've got to know your referral patterns. That told that would have told me in 10 seconds, I know what you need. You need to see the local doc. You probably should chat about getting some cortisone tablets because you've got the inflammatory condition in your neck, and it usually responds to this. But I'll send you off to the doc to see it. This is how we're going to address it because it's definitely a disc because nothing else refers to that position there. Her history was perfect for it. Mm. So I'm really going, what the hell are all the professions being taught at universities at the moment? It looks pathetic. Interesting. So, so weird, weird shit that is happening out there. I'm hearing students are telling me in all the professions, they're being taught about this thing called non-specific lower back pain. That doesn't exist. It's a research term that's total bullshit. It's a way to invalidate actually doing anything useless, useful clinically. And it just right. teaches you that you're never going to be a good professional because you can't tell what the source of the problem is. It sounds like a cop. The studies are all in error. <laughs> God. Um, yeah, it pisses me off. I've, yeah, that's okay. Tell. I've got sound. Yeah, <laughs> sure. it always seems like we 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 falls under, you know. It, no matter no matter where you go, no matter how much science you talk to people, I think I feel sometimes we get the same approach as as any other philosophy or religions. Like, oh yeah, you just believe in science, and that yeah. we kind of get dismissed <laughs> get dismissed as well. So it just seems to be put in the same category as you know non specific back pain, just to some people because they ignorantly don't want to open their mind to change. I mean, and I really think Gus, Gus, as you know, these people really well, we can't change those people. So let's help the ones who need help and yeah. we'll help educate those. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a dilution effect there, maybe because obviously there were fewer, I presume when you studied, there were fewer people studying what you studied. Now there's, mm -hmm. and what happens is it only takes one bad person to become a tutor at a university to then create 30 bad practitioners who then create another 50 and then, you know, it's like... You're very, you're very, you're very kind there, Ben, but actually it's a political agenda just to make money out of universities. They basically, <laughs> teach, <laughs> they basically teach what's easy to teach, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Right, so, the, so they, the, the, yeah, they make it so the maximum number of people will qualify to actually do the course and stay on the course and keep paying. Yeah, we've written right. this exam for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Yes, things are proven basically wrong, but we're going to examine you on it anyway because, yeah, fuck it, we have to change the curriculum. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, look, there's a, thing called the, there's a thing called the VMO. There's no such fucking muscle. It doesn't exist and never did. But 30 years ago, there was a proposal that it did. All right, when you look through all the evidence now, we know that it doesn't ever exist. Yeah. And the whole idea was dead wrong. And we know it's dead wrong. 
but they're still teaching at the university, as far as I see, to so wow. many students, almost worldwide. Right. Wow. So, so yeah, there's something that was dead in the water a long time ago. Transverse abdominis multiplicis theory, absolute bullshit. But it's still being taught, even though it's dead wrong. What the fuck? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Takes so long for it. Yeah, yeah don't, pull, don't, don't pull your goddamn belly button in. That will not stabilise your spine. It's funny the amount of times people come to me. It's like, oh, I've been told to suck it in every time. Every time they lift, every time they everything. <laughs> right. And, and we had the, we had this chat because, sorry, I've I've had a st- issues with not being able to deadlift for long periods because my lower back's completely fucked, stiffens up and all this stuff. I did one session with Gus who basically taught me how to breathe properly and brace correctly. And I've been deadlifting ever since. And it's just disappeared. It was, it was that simple. Uh, um, it is that simple. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It, it is incredible. Beautiful. Yeah. When someone actually has the eye to it, they basically say, stop overthinking it. Do what I say. Like Gus does. Listen straight. Yeah. What, so how long, going back to the peck, how long did it take for you to, get back to competition kind of level seven weeks, seven weeks. I benched one night again. So I kind of oh. picked that as the point as I recovered for real. Yeah. yeah. It's good cause now. Yeah. Yeah. So once yeah. I could bench what tore me in the first place, I was like, cool, I'm recovered. But yeah, wow. I was benching a lot, lot. I was benching a lot earlier, you know, a fair bit, a bit earlier yeah, than that, but there was no, no rush, no rush for me. So yeah, the, the healing process was very, very quick and stronger. Um, if anything, this side's the strongest, is like coming the strongest side now. You know? Oh, definitely, yeah. So much makes you more aware of everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So it's seven weeks. Yeah. So there are the things where Gus will be able to look at your deadlift technique because he's seen 10,000 people deadlift. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll just pick it and just say, hey, just hold on for a sec. Just do this. Breathe. <laughs> Correct, yeah. Correctly. The, the breathing <laughs> came out of nowhere. I was expecting some kind of like hoodoo around. I don't know. I think there's a, this might be a little good segue about into something that I've been be wanting to talk about because it's been pissing me off is that, um, so I've had a few people come, come, come to me about debating this whole vertical shin position in the deadlift. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's to the point where now it's becoming such a, uh, a religion in a way that people were regardlessly. So yeah, I, I've made a couple of posts about it and, you know, with some scientific backing, you know, referencing Newton, you know, laws of physics and laws of motion. And and, who's who's that guy? What a joke. And, and um, I just get, you just get sometimes just lashback with no, 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 no backing, just no, I don't believe that. So I'm going to yell at you. That'll do. Um, That's pretty much it. So you're right there. So, You'll find, as you say there, that's pretty much a universal with all the greatest lifters that you'll see is that's what they'll achieve. Mm-hmm. So some people who, for example, you get people who aren't that bright who want to become chess grandmasters, okay? It's sort of like not going to happen. Yeah. They're not able to do it. There are certain people, you're going to put a bar in front of them, you go, it's impossible for you to get your vertical shin. Okay, we're going to accept because you're not good enough to do it. Somebody else is, they're just not doing it. We have to bring the technique back to maximize and optimize. They're basically ground reaction force. So, yeah, you'll get people who can't do it. And there's usually an anatomical reason. That's about it. And I think that's the, I think that's what people aren't understanding is that I think people sit in the one side or one side or not. It's like you either believe in one thing or the other. But the thing is it goes it goes both ways and what works best for 
works best for the individual. So yeah, not everyone's going to have be able to be biomechanically in the most optimal position, but anatomy is the key key here. And so you know, but how functional, how far can we get to that optimal position that is going to allow you to deadlift as efficient as possible? <laughs> so so just that's it, realistically. So just just a little, so true. Sorry, go on. Yeah, what you'll see is you slow the videos down, you'll always see that the best people have certainly got the shin basically at vertical within a centimetre or two of the bar being off the ground, but usually it's the moment the bar is leaving the ground, the best people are in that position at that time. There's the anatomically best performer, and they'll do it in the anatomically best way, in the biomechanically most efficient way. That's what you're going to get. Yes, Usain Bolt has one leg that is longer than another by 13 millimetres. Yeah, he's a bit different to everyone else, but not everyone who's 13 millimetres long on one leg is going to run as fast as Usain Bolt. So you try and model yourself on the best people anatomically of what you've got. Yeah, so so for, for the list, listeners listening to this, what, what we're going on about now is the 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 rate the debate raging at the moment between deadlift technique and whether your shins should be vertical, i.e. ninety degrees to the ground when when you lift. And I think the answer is it depends. There's something <laughs> as always as always it, it depends on you, many variables. If you do, you'll probably be optimizing your ability to move that weight. Yes. So that's the correlation. Mm. So you will so, move your best weight if you can do that. Yeah, so so it's something to aspire to. But do you feel like do you feel like if it is something that's out, people some, certain people can't touch, then they're naturally going to not be happy with the concept that that's the best way to do it because they're never going to attain it. That that'd be quite. Yeah, I, I, probably. People probably feel threatened a little bit. You know, maybe I some people. Know. Some yeah, people they, just they aren't going to be. They probably, yeah, they probably need a good coach as well mm. who can really test them out in different positions. They might be better with a semi sumo. They might be better with a sumo. They might be better with a conventional. There's a lot of things to test out. You know, it's not just in one position. There's a lot to it. And there are anomalies in everything. So we can accept the anomalies. But I always say you've got to prove you're the anomaly before believing that you are the anomaly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's get you doing things as well as we can to the basics. And then if you get good enough and you need to change things, you're probably going to be able to if you need to. It's an interesting point. I know in um, in weightlifting, um, who's a Chinese lifter? Lu, Lu Zhaojie, I want to say. Part of my pronunciation, if I got that wrong. But basically in his clean and jerk, he did a squat jerk rather than a split jerk. And everybody started trying to squat jerk because he was smashing records. Mm-hmm. It just turned out that he was anatomically built to... Pre- <laughs> to do that movement and he was very unique in that and everybody started failing left right and center basically so i guess it's kind well, of well and he was he was the italian fellow huh so that means he's got perhaps certain genetics which mm. allowed him to take that position yep and then if you had a very if you had a very celtic hip and you were coming out of scotland and ireland you might have not had his hip structure yeah exactly that's change something yeah you're probably better to split 100 all these little things are important that's why we always say you know Look at where people come from. Quite often, you'll see that the way that they have naturally even evolved how to dance, you know, river dance, right? Yeah, yeah you're yeah. not going to find that. In, you're not going to find that in Thailand. <laughs> They've got different hip structures. Interesting. That's a really interesting theory, but it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I remember this one saying that not everyone can, not everyone can deadlift, and it is due to anatomy. Mm. 
Yeah. So you got, oh, interesting. So not everybody should be deadlifting is what you're saying. Correct. Yep. There'll be a certain amount of population who are anatomically unfortunate and they may be able to deadlift from a different height, but not from nine inches off the ground. Okay, and that's, the, that's just the diameter of the plate. That's what we're looking at, the radius of the plate, okay? The distance from the ground. Why is it that height? Why is the bar that high off the ground? Well, it's because that's the height of a human head that you won't crush it if you drop the bar on your head. Yeah. That's why the plates are made that, that size. So it's an arbitrary measurement. It's not made for everybody to suddenly say, oh, you can all put your hands on a bar nine inches off the ground. No, there are people who can't. Wow. Okay. I never knew that. Yeah. And it's a way it's to do with the hips, like deep or shallow hip sockets that Andrew teaches one of his, one of his workshops. So there was, so you're saying that, that a deep hip socket would probably would put the, would put the spine in an unfavorable position. Right? You have to, yeah. You're probably going to have to flex your spine to get to that bar a lot more than a person who has a more shallow hip socket. Cause there's a point where the hip socket's going to suddenly say, that's as much room as I've got. And I can't quite get to the bar at this point now. What else have I got? I got my spine to flex now. Okay, it's not the baddest thing in the world. It's not the worst thing in the world. But if you've had a back problem and your sport does not require you to deadlift as a requirement of it, then let's change it to a way that you can get to the right position for you without having to involve the back as much. That we can basically make it into a, mo a moment arm so it's not flexing under load and you'll be able to do all your sport work, no problem. Everything is basically based upon what the client needs. Mm. So if you know if you're a soccer player and you got S and C coach says you need to deadlift, I don't have a problem with that. But if you got a structure that says you can't deadlift from nine inches off the ground, make it twelve. Fine by me. Right, and then we're coming we're coming back to this um, concept of specificity that that really yeah. separates the good and the bad here. Um, totally, yes. Yeah, you almost always get it wrong if you just blanket everybody with the same rules, right? Yeah. yeah, you probably have an eighty percent success rate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you can sell your snake oil because that'll work. Yeah, yeah, it does. And these, that's it's interesting. It's a universal, isn't it? Whether you're coaching or whether you're in health professions, mm -hmm. you know, you've got a, a vast majority going to do okay, unless you're doing something super weird. And right. there are coaches out there who do super weird, who have reputations for injuring more people than anyone else. They exist. We all know who they are. <laughs> So I've been wanting to pick your brain about something, something new that you've uh, posted about the lock five. Yes. And what a thing that is, huh? You've worked it off the work of Stuart McGill. Exactly. So the fine Professor McGill basically created this beautiful three series of exercises that stabilizes the core and gives you better, let's say, reaction time, better bracing, better coordination. In testing, I think it was between 45 minutes and two hours, you get a, a good body response from it. So the idea of the big three, which McGill produced, was basically doing a stabilizing exercise, the bird dog. We did the front plank and side planks. And then we do a McGill curl up, which is a great abdominal activation. And the thing about what I love about McGill's work is it, it applies to a large, a large population. And he's really good on the gin pop people too. He's awesome. Um, because we deal a lot more with an athletic population, I don't get patients who will do a front plank off their knees, okay? But a lot of people are going to have those sort of people. I don't get them. I'll get one or two a year that I'll actually accept that from. So all year I'm dealing with people who are a little bit higher level. 
So like basically, as we say, stand on the shoulder of giants, mm. taking McGill's process, I moved it on to more applied to our population. So the base five took over from the McGill three. And the concepts are very similar, except that I'm working the hip into it. So what I do is I bring the clams that I basically invented 10 years ago, which hit the glutes perfectly. And as you stabilize the glutes, the idea with the first exercise is that it turns glute max on, glute max is your major hip extender. Because it's not turning glute max on into hip extension, it's involving it in abduction and external rotation. Mm. So I'm preparing it to work. Because most people with the back problems overextend their lumbar spines when they're trying to do hip extension. So the biggest thing I can do is get them hip extension without the lumbar spine extension. Lumbar spine extension is okay if you know how to use it. So we do the lock clams and that immediately stabilizes the pelvis and makes the lower back move a little bit better. Then we do the front plank and the side planks because everyone can do those. We have to do those. Then I bring in the shoulder touch. So that's a nice tough exercise. The shoulder touch is brutal for people. Don't make that pelvis move. Make sure everything's nice, slow hands. And that turns on your abs so hard and makes your hips stabilize as well. Then we go into hip extension as the last part of the five. All right, that hip extension, now I can actually get you to stabilize your pelvis and teach you how to extend your hip without lumbar spine compensation. So that's the concept behind the base five is taking McGill's lumbar spine stability and adding a hip extension component to it. And that's been great. That's been the biggest difference for so many people now in our population because they need to be able to extend their hips, which the McGill three is more about the lumbar spine stability. So I'm working the movement pattern working. So you that's, that's basically combining both... Obviously, combining the hips and 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 the core as one as one system, as that's they generally yeah, have related we'll, related problems. We've got to say that the glutes have got to become core muscles. Yeah, now, we could just use it and say you know the glutes. I like to say the glutes. I don't need to say glute max, glute med, glute min. Let's just talk about the actions they perform because a lot of people overthink things. Immediately, you saw, the worst thing I hear is somebody saying, "Do you want me to engage my glutes?" And I usually say, "No, I just want you to extend your hip." without extending your back. Mm. In other words, don't overthink it. Yeah. Because it's like when somebody does shoulder stability work and they say, do you want me to pull my shoulder blades back? No, I want you to lift the weight the way I showed you to and then your shoulders will retract naturally. But if you try and outthink me, you will fuck it up. Mm. Okay, so stop it. Don't do the thinking for me. I'm doing the thinking for you. Do exactly what I say. And if I need you to do it, I'll tell you to do it. And if you're doing something and I'm not saying anything, you're doing it right. That's pretty much it. So I see in your lock five that you do you did a prone a prone hip extension. Was it that um, can you if for from for say for more advanced advanced um, athletes would would you replace that with a um, single leg extension? If they are getting yeah, you put them in. And of course, I got the knee bent there to take the hamstring out because that's the idea is I want to get hip extension without the hamstring contributing. So I want to include Max to do it. Mm-hmm. But what I would do is I'd use the five and then I'd put something on top of that. So we might, like I've got maybe a four-point kneel and you might be banded in that position there. So you're actually banding your hip extension, but you are making sure your pelvis doesn't move at all. Mm-hmm. So we're really working a lot on maximizing hip extension without lumbar spine compensation. Okay. Uh, that's a mass, And that's a massive changer because, of course, that then relates to our, we talked about at the start of the proprioception, getting the small muscles in the spine to be able to stabilize the spine as we get any hip extension. Oh, now we're really starting to talk about real human movement. 
So what made what made you what made you kind of think about re- like not not replacing, but what made you think different about the exercises you chose compared to say compared to having the um, McGill curl up and bird dog? Well, actually, tell it, it actually happened when I was actually with Professor McGill in Canada that time in uh, 2018 when you were there. Yeah. Um, because I went to his house and spent some time with him, and I was doing a little bit of work where we were discussing things. I showed me how we worked the lock clam, and then basically we had a look at someone who was there and saw that without doing anything else, just by putting the clam in, that person's lumbar extension moved so much differently without doing anything but 25 clams on each side. And Professor McGill looked at it and thought, okay, this has clearly got a significant influence to the movement. And basically he's always said to me, yeah, it's my job to figure out what the hell I'm doing because he's pretty busy with what he's doing. And unfortunately I get a little bit stuck trying to hunt the research up as well. But what we saw there was a clinical evidence of something immediately changing. And I'll tell you, during my week at, at work, whenever I see a patient, I will test things on them that I don't know whether it's going to change something or not. So I might do, you know, like 25 clams on a person who's got a disc injury and got an extrusion with a weak calf. I might go test their calf raise again. Now, in my mind, there shouldn't be any effect. But the day I see an effect, I'll know that there was a relationship of something. So I always test the things that I have some belief in, but I still want to test them every now and again. It's like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, always testing different parts of the fence <laughs> yeah. because then, then you'll find the weakness that you didn't know about. So I never have a day that's not without testing myself every time. And that's that's really where it all comes from, is testing yourself and thinking about how you've seen something do something and trying to understand more about it. So McGill's work is so awesome, you know, the, the ability to teach the gen pop work how to be a lot better in the spines. And really my work is then bringing up the more higher athletes who are going to be lifting ridiculously huge weights. And how do I load them? How do I get them to tolerate the loads that they should? And how do I get them to move? Because usually the classic thing is the more brilliant and more outstanding most of the the lifters I see, um, the more dysfunctional they'll probably be before they know they have a problem. Yeah. So they will be absolutely shit movers, but they won't feel pain until they're 90% stuffed. Your gen pop person who's cotton wool, give them a 2% dysfunction and, oh, I'm in pain. That's just part of the makeup of us. Right. Mm. You know, it was like, I think, Milanichev when he came out to big dogs a few years ago. You know, he missed his opening bench. Yeah, guess what? He tore his tricep and no one knew about it. Uh, he got his bench again about 10 minutes later, didn't he? Yeah. Remember he did that with a torn tricep. Yeah. Whoa, wait. So he made it with a torn tricep, but just because... He's that elite. It basically was. <laughs> who knows? Who knows what goes on in his head? <laughs> yeah. That's what he did. <laughs> and then don't, don't, don't forget that he locks out the winning deadlift mm. with the torn tricep. You know, that's the difference. You're not going to get that with your gen pop person. So we are handling people sometimes who are very dysfunctional, but they don't know they are. Mm. You say we and have more room. We have, we have a, a greater room for error, would you say? Because yeah, of our strengths? Yeah. I almost wish I had that. Yeah, I wish I... <laughs> I often think too much. That's part of the problem. I'd love to be able to go in, go to the pain zone a little bit deeper. And I've got to say, your velocity-based training, Gus, I think is magnificent. I was, um, you know, I saw a clinical observation the other day of the great Tom Platt's training. Yeah. And I was watching because he was big in a lot of parts. I watched his work. He was velocity-based a lot of the time. Man, he moves those weights as fast as he could sometimes. It was real power. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing a bit lately. It's definitely, wow, it's paying off as far as hypertrophy is working for me anyway. 
Oh, it is a, absolutely an amazing tool. And the fact that you can measure these velocities over, over various intensities and, and try to, I mean, we, we, we're seeing a, we're even starting to see not just being able to read what the, what, what, what the nervous system is doing at every point in time, but we're also able to see some of the psychological effects um, that, that is having on individuals and that, you know, people seeing various velocities change make people start to work harder you know, because no one wants to lift, no one wants to lift light. And I tell people, you must hit this, you must hit this velocity. And if they, if they don't, they actually start to lift harder because they don't want to lift light. So they end up moving bigger weights faster, producing more force, getting stronger, building more muscle. And we're getting exact, just because they're moving with more intent and more speed, the strength gains are massively accelerated. And I was able to prove this with Sarah that, you know, someone who's already strong is pretty hard to get stronger and we managed to make some massive progress in a very short period of time, just focusing on that training intent for speed. So yes, yeah. that was interesting. I caught on, I think I originally saw the concept with a guy called Charles Staley, who was a very famous American Olympic coach. Um, he was really well known as a bit of a, a, secret, a secret weapon. And I saw a video where he was talking about, he had somebody, I think it was bench pressing, and he had his um, velocity measure and as he got a person to do 10 or 12 reps, he then demonstrated what their percentage of, of max speed was. And he was basically talking about the fact of, hey, if you've got 10 reps to do, but after the second rep, your velocity is down under 90, basically 92% or something, then why don't you do five sets of two really properly instead of one set of 10 that you're doing really slow? Mm. And ah. that really changed my thoughts too. Yeah, that, I mean, so what, what he's basically saying is that you're basically training 80% of your reps to lift slowly, which will make you weaker. Yeah, that was basically it. Right. Yeah, okay. Brilliant. All that comes down to, was it, like we, we know that muscle growth and, and, and strength come under um, intra, uh, increase in intramuscular tension. And if we're lifting lifting weight slow, the tension on the muscle is, 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 is significantly less. There, yeah, you might be pumping out the weight and getting the volume, but there's a significant difference between moving something twice as fast at the same at the same load because the impact on the muscle and the stimulation from that and the growth you can gain um, from that amount of force applied to the muscle um, is better than just lifting the weight slow. And there it is. There's such a key to an amazing, amazing thought in programming. Yeah, definitely. It's a definitely a new. It's a new new thing that's been popping up. But it, so I, I remember back. What, what, what was it? God, it was 12 years ago. I did applied sports science at uni just, just for yep. lack of a better thing to do because I just thought I'd enjoy it. Um, and they were coming around to the idea of um, sprinters, Olympic sprinters. Basically what they found was that if you're training anything other than the sprint that you are going to perform, you're training yourself to run slowly. It's like <laughs> you almost don't want to ever run less than kind of the velocity you want to go at. If you're, if you're spending five hours a day training sprints, you're spending most of the day training slow, if you know what I mean. Yeah, what they, what's, been, what's been shown in sport is there is not a single marathon runner who's ever made a successful career as a sprinter. Right, yeah, of course. But there's a lot of sprinters who have successfully transitioned into distance running. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I know a lot of people, I've heard of people training for marathons by doing kind of circuit training, gym-based circuit training, doing like 45-minute mm. sessions, but then that transferring into marathon-based running, which is, which is fascinating. 
I don't know anyone. Why would anyone want to do that? But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wrong, <laughs> wrong spot. Wrong podcast. <laughs> I know that fact. Yeah, it's, it is really about the specificity that we can put to something. Mm. But yeah, it's, it is really intriguing that the velocity-based training has a lot of benefits, whether you're into bodybuilding or whether you're into building strength. So there's a real good key to it. Yeah, it's absolutely a eye-opener to just objectifying everything you do in programming and training. Like it's mm. just, you can get so much information. You can kind of reverse engineer that information to take out so much um, just from that because you're really understanding what the nervous system's doing. And then it's just basic physics. I mean, we know strength is force production and it's acceleration, acceleration and mass. I mean, you know, we're always focusing on the mass, but never really having an aspect on the acceleration. Yeah, that's a big key to good coaches. I tend to see that, that concept that, they understand you've got to have your speed in there. Your speed moments, you're refining it to a very high level. And if you're not doing it at lighter weights, I mean, you're not training the person to do it at heavier because we're not going to we're not going to do over 90% that very often. And, yeah, we're moving 90% plus slow, but you're moving that as fast as you can. And if you're not teaching yourself to move weight fast at lighter weights, then you're not carrying that skill over to heavy weights. <laughs> so there's a lot to it, really. As you can see, the science is uh, not really opinions. They're basically you know, bedrock science and bedrock physiology and bedrock anatomy that we're dealing with. And it's always just seems weird to me that people who spend so many years at university have a problem with the basic sciences. Mm. Shit, that's why you should be you should be graduating with just those to begin with. And then you have an, a, you know, an inquiring mind. Is this what you're going to do with your new concept? Was it United Health Education? <laughs> yeah, United Health Education, which is uh, me and Danny, Currently, we're going to be, um, we've got our Instagram and our webpage we up in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So with United Health Ed, we're basically using, she's an osteopath and I'm obviously with a physio base. We're basically just saying, where do we find everything that's truly common in the sciences of what we do? We bring it together. And, you know, we have other professionals who contribute to the concepts. But, yeah, that's really what we're bringing out. So first thing is we actually got um, accredited with Fitness Australia to produce a course for them for eight CEC points. So... We're going to be obviously addressing a whole different audience to what we normally address. We're going to be looking at the people who are obviously in those bigger centres who really are having been educated to the strengths work. Um, we're putting our first course out on the complete glute course for them, and then we're going to do a complete core, uh, core course coming up. So you're targeting course, personal trainers. So you're targeting personal trainers. Yeah, I think I want to be able to help the people who haven't been well educated. Mm. You know, they've just got their certifications, and beyond that. They're really going to be stuck with a lot of you know, bro science at the best. So what we want to do is yeah. bring the top quality product to them by people who have you know, really understood the sciences. So that's our next step. So yeah, we got that up, and as soon as the COVID shit all settles down, who knows? We might have to just do a Zoom one for everybody. Yeah. At this point, <laughs> that's knows? United Health Ed. Yeah. Who knows when that when that's going to end? I mean, poor you guys in Melbourne. <laughs> Though of course I don't notice because. I spend all my day with patients as an essential service person anyway, so I'm really not affected at all. Doesn't make a difference for you, yeah. No, I've got patients in all around the world, probably I'd say pretty much every continent on earth I would be talking to every week with different clients all everywhere, all with all different problems. So we just do it straight up, Zoom, online, FaceTime, whatever it takes. Do you? And, do you yeah, that's the thing. Sorry, do you thing have... professional, I don't need to put my hands on somebody to tell you what the problem is. Mm. And often have patients who come here, with a back problem, and I'll say, by the way, you will have noticed I haven't touched your back. I said, because it proves absolutely nothing that if I know your back hurts, 
and I push something and you go, it hurts. Um, what has that ever proven that we have? Is there something we did, didn't know there? Mm. It's the expectation that I'm going to do that that I have to remove. Okay, part one is you got a shit movement pattern. Mm. You're weak in your glutes. You're sitting in hip flexion. Your posture's poor. Your movement pattern's poor. This is why you've injured this structure. Okay, let's go to the gym and fix it up. Teach you the correct movement pattern. Teach you how to become better endurance with your body. Find out your specifics for whatever you're doing. That's the treatment. I, I don't put my hands on you. I think this is. I think. I think I've said this a few times. Where I think the difference between the clientele that we're getting is that our clientele have to do the work, and <laughs> um, so you got this. You got compliance issues, and why I guess, I guess why people are changing their methods towards individuals because you know I find I got I can do this. I can do the same thing. So when people ask, they want to do coaching with me. Most of it's to do with um, more more management because most of the coaching I don't need to do much one on one time with people. Um, most of it's to do with managing their training program, their nutrition plan, their recovery, because those are the things that matter to their training. They just need instructional advice to start heading them in the right direction. And um, and I think the, the number one key difference is that the difference between uh, you know, seeing your common personal trainer for three sessions, three sessions a week, is that people people's compliancy, people need someone to do something or physically stab you with needles or. Where in, in, in my case, like in your case too, is that the difference between your rehabilitation is that people got to put in the work? It really is. I think that's part of our fortune is we have a population of clients that want to see us mm. are the ones who are going to do the work. I don't get the ones who aren't going to do the work. They don't come to us. Mm. That's why the base five was developed because I'm not going to see the gen pop person that often. Mm. I'm happy to help them out, but realistically, most books are always going to be filled with athletes who have got a problem and someone's saying you've got to go see this guy yeah so and yeah and that's it i can send me three videos of how i want to see you move and i'll pick your problem and then i'll show you what you got to do to fix it that's pretty that's how easy it is of course it took me you know 25 years to figure it out <laughs> yeah yeah it's easy at the other <laughs> end yeah, yeah yeah of course wow, well, we're... <laughs> that's what we sorry go on uh, so that's what we do isn't it? that's our experience we are not at the bottom of the um, the starting of our professions. We have been in this for a while now. Yeah, that that's actually a, a problem that comes up in my industry all the time because people make the mistake of thinking that because I make something look easy that they shouldn't be paying for the 10 years of training and experience it's taken me to get to that point. They, they don't understand <laughs> why there's a price difference there. Um, that's a famous thing about the, tele, the um, television uh, repair guy who comes in and uh, the TV's not working, so he pulls out his screwdriver and hits it on the side and it starts working. And he goes, right, now that's $200. I go, yeah, yeah, he spent two minutes in here. He said, yeah, two minutes, but 10 years to know where to hit it. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? 100%. Well, we're coming up on an hour now. Yeah. All um, good. That was a great, great chat. Yeah. Time to, tra time, time to train. Time to train. <laughs> I, well, I, I, yeah, I feel enthused. My mind's been blown by that. I can't believe you came out in seven weeks back to one rep maxing. Yeah. I, all right. And then went beyond. Going to be stronger than ever. That's awesome. Well, yeah, that's, this, this has been great for me. I've just been sat here like oh. a sponge. Yeah, this is all great. So really appreciate <laughs> you coming you on. It. Yeah. Oh, it's great. To, we, I can't wait to get back up to Brisbane again too. Fuck this cold weather, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, we really appreciate that you've uh, – you had to do a runner to a to a gym during the pandemic to, yep. to find a space where there's a decent internet connection. So, no, thank it's you so fabulous. much. Great.
great to catch up, Dr. Gus, man. I cannot wait to get back up to Brisbane to catch up with you, man. Yeah, see you soon. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Signing off, guys. Love it. Ben, enjoy the day's entertainment. Yeah, thanks, mate. <laughs>